two weeks ago, we began to lay a foundation for something, as a direction that I feel want to go in for just a little time. But I really felt to go back and lay a foundation for it. Foundation is so important, especially, obviously, in terms of buildings, and I, we've talked about that before, but in terms of our own ch- a change in direction, you know, there's, there's things that you see clearly and there are things you don't see clearly, or am I the only one? Everybody else sees everything clearly and perfectly? Oh, then you're deceived if you think you do. What I see, I see clearly, but what I see got me where I am. If I don't like where I am, then I need to see things I don't see clearly, like where I am. (laughs) So it's what we don't see that we need to see that we have to see. I'll I'll go over that again. What we don't see is what we need to see. What was the last part? Because we have to see it. Okay, I got myself confused here. All right. I I better go in another direction. The point is this. There's, there's, there's something that I know God wants us to see. Just that word's been so strong in me over this last year. And that prayer I just prayed over us today, I've been praying over myself for some time now, that God would open the eyes of my understanding. He would give to me a spirit of wisdom, of revelation. And I'm seeing it begin to happen. I was tearing, sharing with Anita just the other day. I said, I'm seeing things I've never seen before. Not with these eyes, but in here. I'm getting sudden understanding of things and why they work the way they do and things that need to be changed in my life in the church. And the greatest thing of all is I'm getting a better understanding of my wife. That has to be God because I've been blind to certain things. Amen, ladies? Men tend to be blind to certain things and God's just opening my eyes and I find those words have been coming out of my mouth. You know, God's just opening my eyes to see this and then I realize, but that's what I've been praying for. That's what I've been praying for. Sometimes we get discouraged because we pray a prayer and we don't see the answer the next day. Well, don't quit praying. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep seeking. Keep asking. Because God's hearing. He'll answer you. And so there's things I'm beginning to see. And I believe, I know that as a congregation, God wants us to see some, something in particular. A basic thing that then He wants to teach us some things out of. You know, you look through the book of Acts and it says, "...and they came together of one accord." That doesn't mean they agreed on everything. What it means is they all saw the same thing. See, when a body, when a group of people see the same thing, they'll move together towards that. Each person may see a different component of it, but other, without that, we're just all coming together to church. We're having church together, you know, some eight or nine hundred people on a Sunday morning just coming together and having church instead of being the body of Christ here at Faith Christian Center. So what brings us together as the body is to see the same thing. That's what we've talked about most of this year is vision. And now there's something, God, that's essential for us to see. Not only that, it's essential for you to see in your own personal life because it's the answer to some of the situations that, that, that many of you are in. But to, do, to understand that before I launched into it, I really felt, this is why we were away on vacation a couple of weeks ago, that God woke me up in the morning and showed me, he says, no, son, this is, what you, this is the foundation that you need to see. So last time we talked, which was two weeks ago, we began to lay that foundation. And we talked about what I entitled Paradise Lost, which is a, a title of a, of a famous poem written by John Milton back in the 1600s, one of the great classics of English literature. But if you ever read through it, it's extremely scriptural. And we looked at what God intended in the very beginning. We saw that if you want to understand God's will for us, there's three places to look. 
when God created everything before man began to fool around with it. The second place is when God came to this earth, when He took on flesh and dwelt among us. So we look at Jesus and see what He was like. And the third place is when God recreates it all over again in the end. Each of those cases is where God's had His hand in it without our help. It's when we get our hand into it that we end up where we are today. That's why you can't look at the world today and discern from that what God's will is because it's like taking a car that's come off a showroom when if you want to know what Chrysler's idea of whatever it is or Ford's idea of pick one of the models, I don't care, the Edge or whatever. If you want to know what Ford, the engineers of Ford intended for that to me, go look at it on the showroom before anybody's driven it. But once it's been driven by you or me through a few New England winners... You can't now go look at that Ford five years later, ten years later, two thousand years later, and discern what the manufacturer intended to be like. Why? Because the manufacturer hasn't had control of it. We have. And so we've got to look. So what we did is we began to go back and look at the beginning of how, what God meant when He created us and what He intended for us. And what we saw was it was a paradise. Now, most of the time when we think of a paradise, you may get a picture in your mind that may be some beautiful Caribbean beach, you know, with, with, you know, nice warm sunshine and, you know, balmy breezes and, you know, you know, your Diet Coke or whatever you want in your hand, you know, and people coming out with a tray and saying, what can I do? That may be your idea of paradise, but that is so far beneath God's concept of paradise. And so we began to see that. That's what I liked about that last song that we sang. Because paradise, true paradise, is just being in His presence. He's the source of life. He's the source of joy. He's the source of peace. It isn't that He has a lot of it. He's the source of it. And we've talked about Moses spending 40 days on the top of a mountain and didn't need to eat and didn't need to drink anything. He was sustained, his physical life was sustained by the being in the presence of life himself. And he didn't leave because it was time to go home. God had to tell him to go down off the mountain. And see, that tells me right away where, where, how we see God, how, what a limited view we have of him and of his, how he sees us. Because it's so hard to get people to pray. And what's prayer? It's just being in His presence. And we think of prayer as work. Oh, I gotta pray. I gotta, I gotta give God my 10 minutes or 15 minutes or half hour. As if it's like going to work. Which means I'm not really in His presence. Because when I'm really in His presence, I don't want to leave it. And so we talked about Genesis 1 and 2, and we talked about what that paradise was like and how God created this man and this woman. And, and at the end of chapter 2, we see that, or the, towards the end of chapter 2, He then placed, He made them in His image. The only creation He made in His image. And then He placed them in, his, in a, this garden called Eden, which means a place of delight. And He said, enjoy it. Eat of everything. He gave them a job, a responsibility to manage it, but everything they were managing was designed in such a way that it cooperated along with them and made their job easy. And, 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 and at the very end of chapter 2 is this powerful verse to me. It says, And they were both naked, 
and were not ashamed. We talked about what that meant. The reason this was paradise to them, the reason that they were full of joy, the reason they were full of peace is they weren't aware of themselves. They were totally lost in who he was. Now to us, that seems like if you get lost in who he is, then we lose who we are. But it's your consciousness of who you are that gets you in all the trouble you get into. And so we saw that this paradise that God created was where they were just totally absorbed in who he was and they weren't losing, they were gaining by being so absorbed in who he was. They were one with him. And then we saw that that lasted just those two chapters. And in chapter 3 we saw so the contrast is so powerful because chapter 2 ends, they were both naked and were not ashamed. They weren't aware of themselves. They weren't even conscious of themselves. They were just so lost in who God is and His love and His generosity and His blessing. And as a result, they were so blessed and so well taken care of and so satisfied. But Satan came to destroy that paradise. And the way he came to do it, we saw, was he came to very subtly, not directly, very subtly, get them to start looking at themselves and to stop looking at God. We saw he did that because that's what he did in the beginning. And we went back into Ezekiel and Isaiah and we saw that he was God's most, one of God's most beautiful creations. And then all likelihood he was worshiped, he was in charge of worshiping. He says he was the anointed cherub that covered, he hovered around the throne of God, worshiping God. And then there was music that was coming from him. But it said he got lifted up because of his own beauty, which means he must have at some point taken his eyes off the source of his beauty and began to look at himself as the source of his beauty. And then we saw his own testimony because he said, I will make myself. We went through like six or eight times he said, I or me or mine. I will make myself like the Most High. And so he comes to the earth having been thrown down here out of paradise in heaven, thrown here, and he has one motive when God recreates things down here, and that's to destroy God's creation by the same thing that destroyed his place in heaven. We ended up by saying, and that's the root of every problem you and I deal with. It's self. Promoting self, protecting self, aware of self. And that is where paradise was lost. And the root of all sin, the essence of all sin, is I put my eyes on me and off of God. I see myself as separate from God. That first man and that first woman did not have any concept of themselves as separate from God. They were just lost in who God is, but the result of it is everything God was, they were also. But the moment they put their eyes on themselves, they broke that unity And they separated themselves from God by establishing their own identity. That's what the temptation was, was to establish their own identity. And the moment they established their own identity, now they become their own God and responsible for themselves. Of course, the problem is neither you or I were made to be a God, so we're not capable of being our own God. That means we're under somebody else's lordship. And the lordship we all were under were Satan's lordship. But he's crafty enough so we don't think we are. Why? Because we're not looking at him. We're just looking at ourselves. And that's where we left off with Paradise Lost. That's where every each one of us was born into. So we're going to pick up right now because the good news is 
that God didn't leave us there. The good news is that God didn't leave us there. So we're going to pick up this morning and we're going to look at the good news that although paradise was lost, paradise has been regained. God started right away in in Genesis chapter 3. As soon as man broke relationship with God, separated himself from God, because in order to establish your own identity, you have to separate yourself from God's identity. I'm going to say that again. In order to establish your own identity, you have to separate yourself from your identity in Him. Remember back when we studied about, about following Jesus, and we saw that when He said, come follow me, they had, in order to follow Him, they had to leave where they were, Well, in order to be identified with yourself, you have to leave being identified with Him. You can't be identified with Him and yourself. Now, this, I know this is, this is, this is, this is a, really what's called a paradigm shift. It's a change in how you see yourself, how you see God, and how you see the world around you. But it's so important for where we're going to go that we make this together, that we understand this together. Because what we saw last time is that because the way God created this, and of course He creates it the way He wants it, and He creates it the way it works best, and He creates it in the way that's going to be best for us. I'm going to say that again because we don't often think of these terms. We talked about the fact that God is the creator. Nothing. You have never created anything in your life. And you never will. Why? All we do is take what God's created and work with it somehow. He is the creator. And because He's the creator, we saw He's the owner. Therefore, we saw that we were not, when God made man, God was the owner of the man, and God entrusted to the man this earth. He put everything in His hands except one thing, one tree, And that was a reminder that that man was a steward over everything and the owner of nothing. This is how God designed it. When you make something, if you've ever created anything, then you can decide what it's going to be like. But He created all of this, so it's His right to decide what it is. Now, we can either cooperate with Him or we can fight Him. But I give you a piece of advice. It works much better if you cooperate with Him. And so God created this in a way that... But but because of that, He entrusted everything to this man. He could... Even to the point where he, he, He entrusted to Him to name everything, all the creatures. And God went by whatever name man named Him. Complete freedom except for one tree He couldn't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm not going to go back. We talked about why that particular tree. But now we've picked up at chapter 3 where this has all now been broken. Man has decided, no, I want to own it. I want to own myself and I want to own my life and I want to own my own decisions. And we see the immediate effect of it is it created a separation because the first thing he did was he went and hid And when God showed up on the scene, God says, where are you? It wasn't because God didn't know where he was. But he was getting the man to locate where he was. 
He says, where are you? And he said, I have, I'm, I, and God said, who told, he said, I, I hid myself, because, we hid ourselves because we were naked. He said, who told you you were naked? He also said, I was afraid. Then God shows up to have an accounting of what happened. And now we have man for the first time blaming other people and refusing to accept responsibility because he said, it's the woman you gave me. In other words, I don't show whose fault it is, I just know it's not mine. It's either her fault or your fault because you gave her to me. And man's been doing that ever since, covering himself. They covered their nakedness with leaves and he covered his guilt with excuses. God comes on the scene and begins to pronounce consequences. And he turns to the serpent and he says, from this day on you're going to crawl on your belly. And then he says, and this is what we're going to pick up and look at, in chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is the serpent, and between your seed and her seed. And in your Bible, the second seed should have a capital S. Not seeds, a seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God is announcing right there a plan of redemption, that he is going to send a seed of this woman way down the road that is going to bruise his head. Now, to bruise the head means to defeat. Because then he says, and you'll bruise his heel. The heel's obviously at the other end of the body. A head wound is much more critical than a heel wound. And so basically what he's saying is, God is announcing there's going to come one born of this woman down the road who's going to destroy what you've done here. You'll hurt him but he'll destroy what you've done here. And of course, this is Jesus that he's talking about. Okay. Now, from that point all the way through the rest of the Old Testament and then the 400 years of silence between the close of the book of Malachi and the opening of the Gospels, this separation existed between God and man. You had God, a loving, gracious, benevolent Father, Creator, and you had man who had rebelled against Him. See, my biggest challenge in coming to, into getting saved was I was a good sinner. What I, I don't mean by that I sinned well. I was a good person that was a sinner. Now, some of you knew you were sinners. You didn't need anybody to tell you. You knew you were because you knew what you were doing. But I looked at myself and compared myself to the other people that I worked with and most of the people in my family that I grew up around. That's a pretty good guy. I basically, you know, I didn't lie. I'm not, I'm not saying I, I never did. But I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't cheat on my taxes. I was a pretty honest person. I was, you know, I love my wife. I love my kids. And I, you know, I, I'd read, you know, about being a sinner and it just never resonated with me because I never thought of myself as a sinner because I didn't think that I was sinning because I compared myself 
with everybody else. And compared to everybody else, I was pretty nice. Now, it's interesting. Sitting in here right now, some of you are feeling warm, and some of you are feeling cool, and some of you are feeling just fine. And you know what? The temperature's the same for all of you. Whatever it is, it's the same for all of you. The difference is comparing the temperature of your body to the temperature of the room. For some of you, the temperature of this room is cooler than the temperature of your body, and therefore this room feels cool to you. For some of you, the temperature of this room feels warmer than the temperature of your body, or maybe it's the other way around, and you feel hot. And for some of you, it feels the same. But the point is, the reality is, the temperature is whatever it is in this room. And you're judging what the temperature's like by how you feel compared to it. And that's what I did with sin. I compared me and how I thought of myself to other people that I knew and things I read in the Bible people did. And it's like, hey, I'm pretty good compared to them. So I didn't see why I needed a Savior. I understand why you did, but I didn't know why I did. (laughs) You know, I'm joking with you. But there were people around me, boy, they sure need to get saved. And you know, we think in those terms still because we'll look at somebody and say, boy, they'd make a great Christian. Or we'll look at somebody else and say, no, they'll never get saved. They're too rotten. We're thinking in these same terms then. It was when I read a scripture where Jesus said, you need to be, must be perfect as my Father's perfect. And I literally, it was shocked to me Because I suddenly saw God's standard. And literally the words out of my mouth was, Oh my God, if that's true, and I was talking to Him, then I need a Savior. And I heard my own words. Sin is separation from God. Sin is trying to live my life my way. Sin is trying to take own, to own what I have. It's my life, it's my body, it's my time, it's my rights, and that is rampant in our world. We're blind, the world is blinded by my, me, my. And unfortunately, so is the church. So it's my rights, my blessing, my body. I have the right to decide what to do with my body. Forget there's a living being inside of it. It's my body. Don't tell me what I can do with my body. Well, we're going to see what God says about that in a little while. That's what the root of all sin is. And Jesus came to restore that unity again that was lost in the garden. We're not going to take the time this morning to go through all the scriptures, but I'll give you several of them so that you can look at them yourselves. And it's basically the salvation, but I want to let you know that. Jesus came... Let's go to to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. 
Well, let's go to verse 18. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. The word reconcile means to bring back into right balance or restored relationship. So he has, not he will when we get to heaven, he has reconciled us to himself. That doesn't just mean that God said, okay, I forgive you guys. Because that's kind of what I was raised in church to believe. Well, Jesus came so that we be forgiven of our sins. Well, it's true. But the reason he came that we be forgiven of our sins, that's just the first step. That's so that we would be qualified to be restored into a relationship with a holy God. Because a holy God can't be in union with unholy people. And that's still true today. He can't be one with unholiness because He is holiness. One of them has to give way and it's not going to be holiness. So Jesus had to first of all pay for our sin so that we could be forgiven of it and then we could be given His righteousness. So verse 18 says that, that, that we might be reconciled to Him restored, not just forgiven, but restored back to that paradise relationship, back to that unity, back to that oneness, that we might be rejoined to Him through Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 21, because it tells us how. Therefore, He made Him, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Notice it's in Christ Jesus. It's in union, joined to Him. That by being joined to Him, we take on His righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. It's not a righteousness because you've been so good or faithful. It's because you came to Christ Before you were ever born, He took sin on Himself. And the penalty for that sin was poured out on Him on that cross. Isaiah 53 talks about it. It says that that, that He was bruised for our iniquities. The the, The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we were healed. Verse 10 says, It pleased God to bruise Him. I was, I was going through Genesis 3.15 where it says, he'll, he'll bruise your head. And that's where the bruise came. When He was bruised. Jesus took upon Himself the condition you and I were in of separation from God. I'll show you even further how He went with that. Turn with me to Matthew Chapter 27. All kinds of directions and things we could go in this. We could spend years on some of this, but there's a specific focus here. Matthew 27. Jesus is on the cross. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, 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 lama shamanak, Shabbatani, 
which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember what happened in the garden when they took things into their own hands and decided to exercise their own will apart from God? I told you last time there was this immediate separation. Once they were separated from God, they became afraid. Think about it as a child. I assume you've either been a child or had a child. That should cover everybody. I don't know about you, but I remember at a time as a child, and you may not have had this experience, but you can understand it. I remember my mother was a very social person. She just kept talking to people. And so we'd be in a store. We didn't have shopping malls like we do now. When I was a little boy, she would be in a store somewhere, and I might be looking at something, and she'd go off talking to somebody. And I'd turn around and couldn't find my mother. Now, you know, when you're 14, that's not a big deal. You don't sometimes want to find your mother when you're 14. But when you're four, and you suddenly realize you're in a strange store with strange people, and you don't know where mom is, that can suddenly be afraid. Nothing's changed. Nobody's coming at me to attack me. Nobody's saying, making, making scary faces at me. There's nothing different this moment than there was ten seconds ago, other than I'm now aware I don't know where my mother is, and my security is knowing that she's within distance of me. And so suddenly I'm afraid because I'm now on my own and somehow innately I know on my own I'm not able of handling this by myself. I need the security of her. Everybody with me so far? That's what happened in the garden except at a much greater level. Suddenly this man and woman who had been in the presence of God, the security, the peace, the joy of this presence of God now not find themselves, made themselves separate from Him and the shock and awareness. See, before they were separated from Him, they couldn't imagine what that would be like. Because all they'd ever known is Him. They'd never known anything apart from Him. And suddenly, they find themselves apart. Physically, He came in the same area, but spiritually, they were disconnected. And now the result is they now find the tremendous blessing, the tremendous peace of being on their own. Oh no. They're scared and they're ashamed and they're hiding. It isn't the blessing that the serpent was promising them that it would be. It's just the opposite. He, they have now been caught in the trap. And they're now on their own trying to defend themselves against their enemy on their own. And that's where you and I found ourselves when we came into this world. Separated from God. Spiritually separated from God. From the source of life. And that's where so much of the world is now. Living in darkness, thinking they see so clearly. So adamant about what they see. That's why it's hard for us to understand why would people take some of the positions they take? Because they're blind. They're not looking at it through the eyes of, of light of God's life. They're looking at it through the futility, it says in Romans, Ephesians chapter 4, the futility of the human mind. 
In God's eyes, the human mind is futile. It's foolishness. The wisest man, the smartest man that's ever lived on her own apart from God, it's foolishness to God, according to the Bible. It's not shocking man would come up with horrible conditions and situations. Why? Because he's trying to do it apart from the light of God, the truth of God. And that's where man is. That's where man finds himself. But the tragedy is that's where so much of the church is today, trying to walk in the light of the world instead of the light of God. Why? Because so many of us still see ourselves as separate from God. So many of us are still trying to establish our own life, our own ways, our own kingdom, and we want God involved as a resource to help us. But that's not where Adam and Eve were. God wasn't a resource to help them do what they wanted to do. They were in vital union with Him and walking with Him. All right. But Jesus came to restore what had been in the garden. In fact, we don't have time to go there this morning, but in Romans, I think it's Romans 5, it talks about him in other places. He's the second Adam. He came to be again what God had to establish, to reestablish again what God had originally established with that first man. But in order to do that, he had to bear our sins. He had to bear the penalty because God is a righteous God. See, our, sometimes our concept of God's grace and God's forgiveness is He did, does what we do with our kids. He looked the other way. Oh, well, let's give him another chance. We think grace and mercy means, well, God said, okay, I'll just, you know, I understand what they're like. I made them. I know they're weak. I know they're trying. So we'll just kind of, you know, I'll just, I'll forgive you and give, you know, we'll start over again. But God, if he did that, he'd stop being God. He'd stop being holy and righteous and just and true. So he has this, he has this, 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 this problem, in a sense, if God can ever have a problem, which on the one hand, he wants to forgive us, he wants to restore us back into this, this paradise relationship with him, this union with him. But on the other hand, there's this sin that separates us, this, this self that separates us, this selfishness, self-centeredness. I, me, my, mine. That separate it's that every time we say I mean mine, and I don't mean literally every time, but when we have that attitude, we're saying to, in God's face, I have my own kingdom. So we don't understand the arrogance. I used to be, there's, a, there's several scriptures, in, in, especially in Romans, where it talks that, that we were at enmity with God. I used to read this and say, I wasn't mad at God. I mean, there's some people out there that are mad at God. I wasn't mad at God. I thought I loved God. I, you know, at least liked Him. <laughs> How could I be mad at God? Because I was looking from in human terms of what that meant. But if you look in terms of who God is and, and that He is our Creator, He's the only one with rights. I've never said that before. He's the only one that has rights. And yet we've gone to establish our own rights in His face and said, I'm going to do what I want to do. I know what your words... I'm not at church now. I know what your word says. I know who you are, but I'm still going to do what I want to do. What that's like... Because we think we have rights that we're exercising. We have no rights. 
All we have is what He's graciously given us. Because we didn't, you know, whereas the first man didn't own anything, he was a steward, he didn't suddenly own everything because he sinned. He still doesn't own anything. And we still don't own anything today either. In terms of the kingdom of God, we don't own anything. We're stewards over what we have. And that's the whole message here. But I want you to see it from God's perspective. So what we've done, all of us to some degree, especially before we were saved, we were basically saying to God, yeah, you're the God, you're the Creator, but I'm a God too. My kingdom's smaller than yours, but I'm God over this kingdom. Well, I never thought that. Well, you did when you wanted to do what you wanted to do in spite of what He said to do. Every time you said, I going to do this and didn't consult what He wanted you to do, you've established your own kingdom in His sight. It may not be popular, but we need to see this. Because without this foundation, without this understanding, we can build a wonderful church doing great things, and it's not His kingdom. It's not for Him. It doesn't give honor to Him, and He won't be in it. And I've got to tell you, there are churches out there that have done that. I'm not thinking of any in particular, but there are churches out there built on man's ideas and, the, and, they're, they, and they're, they feel good about themselves because they're doing God's work, but they haven't asked God what He wanted. And the attitude isn't what, you, what pleases you. So I talked to you earlier when we were talking about praise and worship. Learning to come on a Sunday morning to, what, 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 I want to give something to Him. I want to give my heart to Him. I want to come together and this is a time of blessing Him. And as we do that, we'll restore that connection again. So Jesus came to pay the price for that sin. And He had to do it. He had to take it on Himself. Including on that cross, there came a point when God separated Himself from Jesus. Now, you and I struggle to get into His presence. Jesus lived 24 hours a day seven days a week, through his entire existence in that flesh, in the perfect presence of God. And so for the first time in his existence in this earth, in that body, he had the presence of God removed from him. Why? He had to bear everything we created by that rebellion, including the separation the loss of the presence of God. He had to bear it for us so it could be restored to us. Okay. Now let's go over to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 1, for the law, now we're talking the Old Testament, what the law could do, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, 
can never by those same sacrifices which they continue to offer year by year make those who approach, that's approach God, perfect or complete. For then they would have not ceased to be offered for the worshiper once purified or once made right would have no more consciousness of sin. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve, that first man, when they when they became eye-conscious, when they became self-conscious, separated themselves from the presence of God. And one of the consequences of that was this awareness of themselves. And as soon as they became aware of themselves, they became ashamed and afraid. And man has had to deal with shame and fear ever since. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying here in these first two verses is that the the Old Testament practice of sacrifices could not change that condition. With all of the blood that was spilled, all of the animal flesh that was burned, it could not change the condition of sense of man's heart of consciousness of sin because it hadn't been paid for. It was a cover over, an atonement, a cover over so that they could go through a practice that was practicing in that tabernacle and in the temple. It was practicing what this salvation was going to be like, but it didn't create the salvation. It was a rehearsal for something that was waiting until Christ came to be actually accomplished. Everybody with me? Okay. Now, The goal in the Old Testament series of sacrifices, ultimately, and I'm simplifying a whole lot here, the goal was so that the high priest on the Day of Atonement could go into the most innermost chamber of that tabernacle and then eventually the temple into what was, for most of the time, the actual presence of God. Because that's where we started, remember, back in the garden? So this is all a process of restoring it. So all the Old Testament sacrifices and all those ultimately had at their core root the purpose of rehearsing something, preparing Israel so that when the real came, the real Savior came, when the real plan of salvation came, they were prepared to recognize Him when He came. And of course they didn't because they got their eyes on the practices and off of the one that had given it to them. And that's a danger we can have too. All right. So that's the first two verses. Now let's go over to verse 19. Now he's talking about what Christ has done. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's the presence of God that was in the tabernacle, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us, through the veil. The veil was a, was a, was a, was a, it's a curtain that separated this inner room, which was the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelled, from an outer room which was called the, the Holy Place, which where the priest came and it represented fellowshipping with God, but it wasn't actually. In the temple, they built it on basically on that same model, much more elaborate, much more ornate, but the veil was there. And it says in, I think it's Matthew's account, that when Jesus died on the cross, that that veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, archaeologists have told us that that veil most likely was somewhere between three and six inches thick. 
And when, when the Bible gives us details, like from the top to the bottom, I believe there's a reason for that. And that's letting me know no man tore it. I believe there was an angel on each side. And when the price was paid, they ripped that thing back because it was that veil that separated the priest and man from the inner presence of God. And when Christ paid that price, those angels ripped that veil back and there was now no longer any wall, any veil, any curtain separating man from coming into the actual presence of God like that first man and that first woman did back in that paradise, back in that place of Eden. But what keeps us out? Why don't we enter in boldly, the way he says? Because we walk around with a sense of guilt, a sense of shame. So although there's walls gone and the God's presence is there, we're huddled outside over here doing religious practices, doing all kinds of external things to make ourselves qualified to get in there when he paid the price, ripped the veil open, and there's nothing keeping us back from entering in. And he's in there longing for our presence. So Jesus restored. He broke down that barrier. He, he removed the barrier out of the way. Verse 21, Therefore, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true, that means a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil consciousness. That means consciousness of evil. And our bodies washed with pure water. That's restoring us back to that place that that first couple was when it says they were both naked and were not ashamed. God has paid the price so that we can come into His presence just as we are. No excuses, like Adam did in the garden when he hid. No justifications. Just come just as I am. Successes, failures, sins, and just be open and honest before Him because the price has been paid. Because when you come near to Him, then He can cleanse you of those things. But our instinct is that we only come when we feel confident, listen to me, in ourselves, based on how we've been. And that's not what the Scripture says. It says in full assurance of faith. Faith in what? Faith in what He did, not faith in what I've done. Because the end of chapter 4, I think it's verse 16 says of Hebrews, Therefore let us come, come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. Okay. One last thing I want you to see. Let's go over to John chapter 17. So he's restored the union. I mean, he's restored... He's removed the barrier that separated us. Let's see what He's given us as a result. John 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He starts out by praying just for Himself. Father, restore to me the glory that I once had. 
Then he begins to talk about his disciples, those followers that were with him. And he says, you know, you've given these to me. I didn't lose any. Um, keep them from the evil one. And now starting in verse uh, 20, he begins to talk about us. He says, I don't pray for these alone. That's the apostles. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. We read the word of Matthew. We read the word of John. We read the word of Luke and Mark. Now, they weren't these apostles, but they were ones who believed in the word. So from verse 20 on, he's talking about you and me. Now, this is Jesus praying to his Father. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe God answered his prayer, answers his prayers? Do you believe if Jesus asked God anything, God said, no, I don't think so. He's praying about you and me. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. That's an astounding statement. He's saying, Father, the same unity, the same oneness, the same presence that you and I have together, I'm asking you to bring them into with us. Not just into with us, but also into it with each other. Again, Jesus is asking His Father to do something regarding you and me, that He would bring us into the same oneness, the same unity, the same presence, and all the blessings that come from that, that He had with His Father. Now let's think about what they had together. In one sense, they had a separate identity, because that's the Father and the Son. But that's more a separate of role than identity because they're all one. So in the same way, you and I together are one with Him even though we may have different names, but we're part of Him. That's why I keep telling you, when the Bible says we're the body of Christ, that's not some symbolism that's literally who we are. We are His hands and feet, His mouth, His ears on the earth right now. Together we are. So He's restoring that same union, that same unity, that same sense of oneness that, that God had with that first man. He's restoring that to us through Christ. Look at this. Verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Not will when they get to heaven. That they may be one just as we are one. I in them. That's you and me. You in me. That they may be made perfect or complete in one. That the world may know that you sent me and have loved them. That's you and me just as you have loved me. Look at that. That they may know that you love them. That's you. This is Jesus praying. Just as much as 
You, God, love me, Jesus. Why? Because we're one. See, I talked to you last time. The fear we have, because all we know is being separate, is that if I release myself to God, I'm going to lose. Because we know what we have. We may not like what we have. We may be struggling with what we have, but we're familiar with what we have. And the fear is, if I let go of who I am and my identity and my control, if I let go of all this and I yield it to Him, I'm going to lose. But we look back in the garden, they weren't complaining about what they lost. That was the temptation of Satan to get them to give up what they had. Look at what they got as a result of taking it into their own hands. Fear, guilt, shame, sin, and everything that came out of that, including sickness and disease. It's all rooted in being separated from Him. And God's calling us back into that. In fact, He's brought us back into that union with Him. It's just that we're not walking in it. He's paid the price. He's ripped the veil open. He's calling us. And we're standing outside afraid of what it's going to cost us. What we've got to see is what it's costing us to hold on to what we have. Because remember, this is a loving God who all He wanted to do was to bless that man, that woman. Bless them, provide for them, take care of them. That's all He wants. Let's see what He wants to do for you. But we don't let Him because we hold on to our... I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about our lives. Let's just go quickly. And then we'll probably pick up here again next time. Let's go over to um, to Luke chapter nine. No, by, uh, Romans five. Excuse me. And I'll just start this, and then we'll pick up here because there's something so important to see here. Because usually, what happens? when we hear teachings on loss, they start here. They start here about the cost of discipleship. They start, And you don't see the background that we've looked at. Romans 5. Paul's just finished talking about basically what we've been teaching. About that salvation comes by grace, not by our works. Chapter 4, he talks about what, that, what faith is. In chapter 5, he begins to apply that and say that God has demonstrated His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, while we are at enmity with Him, Christ Jesus died for us. And then it says He came and to, to, to be obedient where the first man was disobedient. So that, that by, the, by the disobedience of the one, sin was made manifest, but by the obedience of the second Adam, sin was paid for and righteousness is made manifest. So that's the background. There's much more in there, but that's basically what he's been talking about. So he's talking about grace. The grace is this gift of God. So we're going to pick up in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's basically at the point we're talking about. Jesus has paid for the price of our sin. 
He's taken our sin upon Himself, given us His righteousness, paid for the sin, so that we might become children of God again, back to that original place that that first man was, in union with Him, in perfect awareness of Him, in perfect fellowship with Him. That's what He paid for, ultimately. But we're not walking in it, and the question is why? So Paul comes to the end of this chapter and says, uh, of talking about what we've just been talking about, and says, verse chapter 6 then, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may may abound? In other words, shall we continue to live on our own? If God's done this out of grace, shall we continue to live our own life so God can have a greater opportunity to pour out this grace? And what he's going to say is, no, you don't understand what he's done and what you did when you came to him. And I'll just introduce this and we'll close. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin, notice not will die, who died to sin live any longer in it? Or don't you know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Now that refers to some degree to water baptism. But what it's really meaning there, the word baptized means to be joined with, immersed in. And the word baptized really has at its roots a process where they used to dye uh, linen and wool, where they would take the white linen or the white wool and they would lower it down into a vat of dye, whether it's red or blue or whatever it was. And when it went in there, when it was and into the dye, the, dye the, the fibers would absorb the dye so that when you brought it back out, the linen was no longer white, it was now red or blue or whatever it was. That word for that process was baptizo, from which we get the word baptize. So the word really means at its root to be joined to, absorbed in, and become one with. So when Paul talks about being baptized into Christ, he's not talking, it's it's symbolized by the rite of baptism in water. But what he's really talking about is this union we've been talking about, this restored to oneness, to into his presence again. And he said, don't you know that those of you who were baptized into Christ were also baptized into his death? And then he goes on to say, and if you were baptized into his death, you will also be baptized or joined together in his resurrection. So what we've seen is that God created a paradise of blessing, of joy, of peace, no fear, no sickness, no disease, because it was being joined to Him. It was all centered around Him. And all of creation was focused on Him. And this first man and woman, all they saw was Him. They had no consciousness of themselves as separate from Him. It doesn't mean they didn't know who they were. They didn't ever see themselves as separate from Him. And then the serpent comes in to tempt them to separate themselves and handle things on their own. And man falls. Jesus comes to restore that. In order to do that, He has to pay the price for our sin. But by doing that, the veil's ripped. We now have a right to come boldly back into the presence of God. That's the right we have because the price has been paid. I didn't have time this morning to go into it, but I would take you into Scriptures and show you that we've been restored, we've been restored to sonship as a family with Him but we're not living like that. Why?
We're going to take a look at why and what we can do about it next week.